Today's program is the final, I believe, in the three-part evening series, Three Moments in the History of Jewish-Christian Relations. Um, I found this to be the most interesting because I've known nothing about any of these. So I hope you, I hope you all agree, or maybe you know more than I do. Um, tonight's program, the final one I mentioned, is um, Missionaries, Mishumadim, Apostates, and Maskilim, Enlighteners, the Revival of the Jewish-Christian Debate in the 19th Century. Hold on for one second. If you are listening to us on iTunes and you are enjoying Professor Rudiman's presentations, we hope that you will support CSP. Go to www.occsp.org. Make your donation today so we can continue to bring awesome speakers to our community and to you wherever you are listening. With that, tonight's presentation, there are no handouts, but it is a uh, multimedia um, slide presentation or um, PowerPoint. So um, without further ado, and I don't want to waste any more time, please welcome Professor David Rudiman to the podium. Thank you. Uh, okay, now I guess Ari's going to work yeah, my slides, and I have, I'm not even sure what order we're in. We're not going to use them all. Uh, this was part of, so here, this is the third, of course, of our series. This is uh, work that I'm presently engaged in. You're gonna hear about a missionary uh, named Alexander McCall. And uh, at the end of February, um, uh, he has a long history, which I'm gonna tell you about, but he spent 30 years as the first professor of Jewish studies at King's College London in the theology department. And I am invited to the theology department of King's College where I'm giving three lectures uh, on this subject, and uh, I'm going to speaking about McCall and the place where he was a professor. So I think that's really cool. Uh, so I'm really sort of gearing up here by preparing myself with you uh, to talk about this project. But I, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to give three lectures, obviously. Um, I'm going to give you some something about the scope of this project. And while I have a lot of notes here, I think if I first of all I can't read them because it's too dark. But besides that, but you know I can wing it without notes. Um, but besides that, I think I, I simply want to give you a taste. I, I, there, there's so much here, uh, and I want to explain to you why I think this particular moment, as a, like, you recall the moment of, about Pico in the Renaissance uh, and the Mishnah in the uh, 18th century England, now we are in the 19th century. So I'm moving up in time. Uh, and what is really remarkable is that when you think of the Jewish-Christian debate, you think of the Middle Ages, uh, you think of disputations between Jews and Christians and so on. You figure by the 19th century, you know, uh, secularization has, has uh, worked its way in. Uh, but indeed, there is a kind of, you know, I, I'm not a 19th century historian. I mean, even, even though I can lecture on lots of stuff. But uh, it's amazing to see the return of something which I thought had already gone away. So uh, I, I'm going to talk about a very complicated thing. I, I guess if I'm going to leave you with anything tonight, it's how historians uh, treat the past with nuance, uh, appreciate complexity, uh, do not label things uh, in a very simplistic way. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about, and, and there's also another inhibition here that I want you to overcome. Uh, until recently, uh, Jewish historians in the main have left alone a subject which they rather not talk about, namely <coughs> converts out of Judaism. Uh, kind of marginalized, 
they're terrible people. They left the fold. They gave up the ship. They are dis they are disloyal and have left Judaism. And therefore, you know, why treat them seriously and certainly as historical subjects? But indeed, conversion is a very big factor in the history of religion and is certainly a factor in the history of Judaism. Both those who converted to Judaism, which of course has gone on for a long time, but also the other way. Uh, in the modern era, of course, uh, many Jews gave up on Judaism primarily as a means of entering into the larger cultural and social space of Christianity. Uh, as Heine once put it, uh, conversion was a kind of ticket uh, into Western society. It didn't mean they were ideologically Christians. It meant they simply wanted to become part of the social world. Uh, there is a very uh, uh, well-known historian at, uh, who just retired from Mich University of Michigan named Todd Endelman who has written a great deal about converts and conversion, and he sees the process as primarily a social one. In other words, simply giving up Judaism in order to get a job, in order to gain entrance into the larger social world of the Christians, both in Western and Eastern Europe. And recently, just about a year ago, he published a big book on the history of conversion in the modern era, where the focus is on this kind of conversion. But uh, that, that's not my interest. My interest is con converts of conviction. I'm interested in to treat converts as part of the intellectual history of Judaism and to see how they sort of shaped uh, a, a world for themselves by leaving Judaism, but at the same time by retaining great deal part of their Jewish identity. It is a very complex process, as you know, if, if any of you converted or know people who converted and so on. You don't simply give up one identity for the other. Uh, when I was uh, down south a couple of days ago, I spoke about Amsterdam and, and the Muranos. Were any of you there? Uh, and there I also spoke about the whole notion of Jews returning uh, after having lived for generations as Christians and now returning to the Jewish fold. So we try to trace that process, uh, that rit de passage, that, that process of, of, of entering one world, entering the other, and also retaining something from the past. So converts and conversion has become a subject of several historians, especially, as I mentioned, Todd Edelman. But I also want to talk about another category uh, within this world, the world of the missionary. Now, you say, what are you doing here? This is Jewish studies, Jewish history. What are we talking about? Missionaries and converts. But I see them also as subjects of Jewish history. And I'm going to particularly talk about one tonight. I even have beautiful pictures of him and his family, which we're going to see in a second. Uh, named Alexander McCall. Uh, he was a missionary. Maybe I should just first introduce him, but let's uh, go, go forward a little bit. I don't, I don't even know the already. So here is Alexander and his beautiful wife, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but he's a pretty handsome uh, dude. Um, so uh, you have the date. So Alexander McCall. Um, so th the way I wanted to start, I can hardly uh, see this again, but I, I do remember it. Um, I start with three kinds of scenes about Alexander McCall. The first is from his a eulogy written by his disciples. He is a very famous missionary. And I should tell you the organization that he represented. The London Society for the Persuasion of the Jews, uh, uh, to, for the, uh, for the uh, I, I don't have it right, for the, I don't have it in front of me. For the promotion, that's the word, I was saying persuasion. For the promotion of Christianity amongst the Jews. Amongst the Jews, that's good old 19th century English. 
This was a big organization. It had millions of dollars, uh, much better endowed than uh, this place. Um, and uh, it was supported by the King of England. Uh, and it spread its tentacles all over Europe and into the Middle East and all over Eastern Europe. Uh, and this became the largest missionary organization for Jews uh, in, the, in Jewish history. Uh, and he was one of the most prominent figures in this London society. But the story becomes even more complicated. Go, go another slide. Let's see a few more. I don't want this. Oh, so here's his whole mishpacha. I mean, he was also believed in Pru Urvu. In, in, uh, so you see Elizabeth and Joseph. I didn't find them all on the internet, but uh, these are all uh, uh, a family. Uh, and the most important one is, let's see, is she there? No, it's not Mary. Uh, Elizabeth. Okay, Elizabeth Finn. Elizabeth married James Finn. And James Finn became the chief missionary of the Lund Society in Jerusalem. So she made Aliyah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and seriously, they, she was totally fluent in Hebrew. So was Alexander McCall. They were, they were fluent in Yiddish. In their home, they spoke only Yiddish and Hebrew. Uh, and these were serious uh, people that learned Judaism. All right, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead of my story. Go one more. Let me just see what's there. Okay, some more uh, sons. Uh, okay, so that's where I want to stop. Okay, that's good. So she wrote a very important text about her father uh, and about her experiences. Uh, and this uh, reminiscence uh, is really part of, of my ability to reconstruct. But what I want to tell you first about Alexander McCall. So he, he was born, I mean, in terms of, of his history, he was born in Ireland, wanted to study the sciences, met a missionary named James Fry, became totally involved uh, in Christianity, um, and then uh, trained for the clergy. Uh, at the age of early 20s, he was sent by the Lund Society to Warsaw. In Warsaw, uh, he studied among the Jews for 10 years. He studied Talmud, seriously studied Talmud. He studied rabbinic texts. He studied among the Hasidim. He traveled all over Poland where, for the Lund Society, and he became engrossed in Jewish culture. And Elizabeth tells us, indeed, that... Uh, he uh, amassed an enormous library of Jewish books. He eventually went back to London. He became a professor of Jewish studies. Uh, and indeed, he knew a, a, an enormous amount about his subject. The scenes that I wanted to convey to you, I mean, just to give you an idea of who is this guy, uh, Alexander McCall, what, I, what I'm, I basically want to do is talk about Alexander McCall. I want to talk about one or two of the people who converted and then I want to talk about the Jewish response, which is that's the most interesting part for me. And that's the, the, the third part of these lectures that I'm giving in London in a couple of weeks. Um, and I want to put this all together. In other words, it is a Jewish-Christian conversation that is going on here. Um, but first of all, let me present him, because most of my pictures are on, on him and his books. Um, so what we have, and I, if I turn to these sheets, then I have the numbers of the slides, which I think will help me, which I don't have. So, um, uh, got it. So that, this is number five, if you can recall the numbers, uh, Ari, as I, I call them out. Um, so Alexander McCall, so there are three, three scenes I want to present. The first is a eulogy about him, which talks about him being different than every other Christian thinker before him because of his love for Jews and his devotion to Judaism. He cares deeply about Jews and Judaism. Now you could say, oh, this is baloney. Uh, this is a guy that's a missionary. How can a missionary love Jews? But nevertheless, he is painted against the figures, and I won't mention all of the names, 
who have written books against Judaism, but nevertheless, they come out with their darts of fire and their anger uh, and their aggression, while Alexander McCall always loved Jews. My impression, and I've read about 50 of his books, the guy was extremely prolific, is that on some level, this guy is absolutely correct. But now, let me go on to the second scene. In my second part, and I'm already introducing him here, I want to talk about a few of the people he converted. Now, you think, you know, millions of, of, uh, of uh, I was going to say euros, pounds, spent on this project. How many Jews did they convert? In the 19th century, maybe a couple of hundred. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe a few more. Uh, and, and they went to Poland, they went to Russia, they went to the Middle East, they went to North Africa. Uh, they were all over the place. I mean, totally committed to this. Of course, there were many missions. Remember, I, I didn't get a chance to talk about the missionary. The missionary is an enormous figure in the history of the Western world, particularly in terms of our, the, the new fields of colonialism, post-colonialism, the notion of the imperial England who are the first Englishmen that go uh, you know, to Asia and to Africa? Th these are missionaries, and they're bringing what they consider to be the enlightened religion, the enlightened culture, to these uh, subaltern peoples you know, who are deprived of culture, you know, going into a Hindu or Buddhist uh, areas and so on. And of course, uh, McCall's focus was, you know, if we're going to do all of this, we might as well focus on the Jews themselves, because they need to be redeemed uh, and converted and so on and so forth. Uh, so the missionary is not an unimportant figure in the history of the 19th and 20th century. And uh, th there are libraries of missions. I mean, uh, missions galore, and there are many missionary societies besides the London Society that I'm talking about now. By the way, the London Society's archive, where did I learn all of this stuff? I sat at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, which is the London Society's archive. It's unbelievable. They documented themselves like, I mean, I never worked, you know, I work in, in, in 15th, 16th century. I don't have so much documentation. There are uh, uh, thousands of files on their missionizing activity. Despite the fact that they didn't convert many people, they report on, in detail about every city and every community and every sermon they heard and every rabbi they met. And I, it, it's unbelievable how dedicated they were to this task of saving the Jewish people. When McCall comes back to uh, England, he there begins to prepare uh, by installment um, his chief work. Now let's, since I don't, I, I'm not going to go according to this. Let me see what the numbers are here. Um, let's go for a little while. All right. Oh, so I, I'm just going to introduce you this, and then I'm going to leave it because I, I don't, PowerPoint, um, you shouldn't be, uh, you know, Draw, PowerPoint should not lead you. You should lead the PowerPoint, correct? <laughs> so let's get this over with, and then I'll, I'll just go on and talk. Um, here is one of his chief prizes. Uh, nice looking Jew, right? He, he agreed to convert as long as he could still look like that. He didn't want to change his look. Uh, and, uh, and you can read. So this is also very interesting. Uh, it's from Moses Margoliot. He is another convert. And he is, there's going to be a chapter on my book on Moses Margoliot. One of my senior students just graduate, graduating this year, uh, a wonderful young uh, senior in, at, at University of Pennsylvania, wrote her, under my direction, a senior essay on Moses Margoliot. I send my students, I, I told her what this project was all about, and she said, I've got to do it. And she went off to London. I was just a senior in college. Uh, and she sat with archives. She was emailing me as she was working in the London libraries and so on. And she has a, a whole dissertation now on this guy. 
What is interesting uh, is that Moses Margoliot, who was a convert, a Jew from Eastern Europe, a rabbi, became a Protestant minister uh, and there uh, um, uh, began to, became in the 19th century, the chief historian of Anglo Jewry. We have three or four books on British Jewish history written by Moses Margoliot. I mean, again, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but that dual loyalty or that mingle identity, you just don't give up who you are even if you convert. And that's the most interesting aspect of this for an historian. But here, anyway, is, is the story of Schwarzenberg, another convert. Uh, and if I recall here, O Israel, the Lord in repeating the words, the Jews of Warsaw were therefore on the qui vive, whatever that is, when the vital spark in their venerable Israel like indeed was about to quit the mortal frame. They crowded the dying saint's chamber. This is about the guy dying. What were uh, his very last words? Brethren, you wish to know what faith I am dying. If every drop of blood in me were vocal, endowed with speech, each such drop would cry aloud that I am dying, full of jo joy and peace, believing in the redemption of Israel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he spoke no more words, okay? Uh, so, uh, in any case, move on. All right, so now I get to the real story. In 1837, based on installments which came out every two weeks, he published a book called The Old Paths. Uh, the Old Paths, uh, a critique of rabbinic Judaism. This was the most devastating critique in the modern era against the Talmud. It was an attempt to argue that while I love Jews and Judaism, the rabbis and their Talmud are destroying the faith of Israel. They are bringing horrible things to the Jews. And therefore, by reading this text, you will overcome your inhibitions, give up on the rabbis, and return to the pure, pure Judaism, which is Christianity. So of course, we have a long history of these kinds of texts. But I want to argue that this text, first of all, was disseminated more widely than any other text. I mean, notice, for example, I haven't looked at this for a long time, so you'll forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me if I'm reading. But here's an edition of 1986. Uh, it's still, you can still buy it. All, these, all of his books are still in print. I mean, their missionaries are still using that. So this is 2012. You want to go out and you know, run to Amazon. Uh, keep going. All right, so here's the German version. Uh, and, wait, wait, you went too fast. All right. This is the most critical edition, Niti okay? The Ways of the Earth. Um, and that was translated by a convert named Stanislaw Hogu, who I want to talk about for a second as well, in 1839. That book was distributed all over the Jewish world, and that's what caused the sensation, particularly when it arrived in Eastern Europe. What were we going to do? We have a book in Hebrew, which is against the Talmud, and against rabbinic Judaism, and argues for a path of love and affection leading the Jews into uh, the world of, of, of Christianity. Uh, how are we going to answer this? So what emerges, ironically and paradoxically, is a group of enlightened Jews in Eastern Europe. Actually, this, the agent of this was a very wealthy Jew named Moses Montefiore. Have you heard his name before? Yeah. Moses Montefiore was very concerned about Alexander McCall and the London Society. And he took a trip to Eastern Europe, and there he looked for learned Jews. Obviously, he didn't feel there were enough in England at the time. Uh, and he came across the Maskilim. Now, I don't know if you've ever listened in the past 16 years to a lecture on the Haskalah, on the Jewish Enlightenment. 
But these were individuals first in Germany, uh, men, you know, beginning with Mendelssohn and, and that, that era, uh, uh, but beyond, uh, who brought the, 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 the Enlightenment to the Jews and argued for a kind of revival of uh, the curriculum. Uh, the most famous uh, uh, um, statement of the Haskalah emerges from a man named Vesely, uh, but uh, also there is a Haskalah that emerged in Eastern Europe, which was more an Hebraic uh, expression of secularization, of reform. The chief East, uh, maskil of Eastern Europe was a man named Ribal, or uh, uh, Isaac Be'er Levinson. Levinson uh, met Montefiore, uh, and uh, I, there are a whole series of others, but I just want to mention him as the kind of father of the Eastern Haskalah. He had written a text called Tudab Yisrael, a, a very important statement about the reform of Jewish education. He had tried to work with the, with the Russian and the Polish governments to try to reform the yeshiva. He was critical of the rabbis himself. And Montefiore says, look, there's this missionary writing this book, Netivot Olam. What are we going to do about it? He spent uh, about 20 years writing two books in which he responded to... Uh, um, to Alexander McCall. Uh, not only him, but as you will see, a whole long list of other writers. I found it fascinating. I found it, first of all, because it's an expression of Eastern European Jewish thought. I felt it, the irony of a person who had attacked the rabbis was now going to defend the rabbis. And what he's going to do is to try to present Judaism in such a way that it would answer all of the arguments of McCall and prove that Judaism is ultimately a meaningful religion with rabbinic culture, with the Talmud. The Talmud was a precious text, and that oral law, as well as the written law, were part and parcel of Judaism. But now I'm jumping ahead of myself. So let me just follow out. So that's the story. But let's go back now to looking more closely at this book. Go on a little bit more. All right, so this is a text which he translated. It's this, uh, the, the Book of Common Prayer, you know, English Protestant, right? Not called Seder HaTfilah. McCall comes back to England, sets up a seminary in a place he calls Palestine Place in London. Uh, and my sponsors tell, are going to take me on a tiul to see all of the different places where McCall hung, hung out in London. And he created a seminary for training missionaries. Who were his candidates? They were all former Jews. So in other words, they had, and so, and what they would do on Friday night is get together and have their uh, service. But of course, it was the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Okay, go on. So this was translated also. This is a remarkable book. Notice 2012 also published um, called Sketches of Judaism and Jews. There is a long chapter on Hasidim. There's a long chapter on Jewish women, which I'll talk about in just a second. Uh, there's a long chapter on Reformed Judaism. McCall, when he got back to England, uh, may establish contact with the Reform Rabbi of London. In 1843, a, uh, the first Reformed temple was established in London. Um, he saw Reformed Jews, wow, they're halfway there. They've almost moved to Jesus Christ. Uh, notice I'm not saying this, uh, you know, I'm a Reformed Rabbi member. So, um, but, uh, but he was convinced that if they had given up, they were critical of Orthodox Jewish law, clearly they were on the way to Christianity and all he had to do was persuade them. So he claims that Reformed Judaism is his great success story. Uh, but of course, these Reformed Jews had not given up on Judaism. They had just reformed it. They had rethought it. They had reconfigured it. Um, 
But nevertheless, all of these essays appear in this remarkable text. But what emerges most of all is his extraordinary love of Judaism. I didn't finish those three sketches in the beginning. I first talked about the eulogy. Then I was, I was about to talk about Stanislaus Hoga's approach to, uh, to McCall as well. McCall um, was his mentor. Stanislaw Hoga was the one who translated this work into Hebrew. But Hoga, as you will see, is critical. He becomes critical of his mentor. He says, why are you bothering to uh, attack the halakha and Jewish law? Why can't you be a good Christian and also be an halachist? Where Hogam ends up, and it's a remarkable story, which is a story unto itself, which I'm not going to tell you this evening, is essentially he separates himself totally from Lund society and begins to write articles in the Jewish Chronicle. That is the Jewish press. Can you imagine a, a, a convert writing articles in the Jewish press in which he attacks Lund society, but nevertheless doesn't convert. He remains a Christian. But how does he do that? He says, we need to create a Jewish community of halachic Jews, Jews observing Shabbos, Jews observing the law, and at the same time believing in Jesus Christ. And, the, and Jesus will not come until this community observing the law uh, is able to uh, find its way uh, uh, to God and to return uh, ultimately to the land of Israel. So he became a Hebrew uh, Christian. Uh, if this sounds like Jews for Jesus, it should sound like it. In other words, what I'm suggesting here is that the phenomenon of Jews for Jesus is not a recent thing. It's been around for a long time. And I could go back to the seven, when I talk about Shabtai Tzvi in another, another lecture next week, you'll hear about the Sabbateans who convert first to Islam and then to Christianity. So we're speaking about mingle identities throughout the early modern period, and here in the 19th century, the same thing. What is really remarkable about him is his deep commitment to Jewish law. Unlike that other convert that I showed you on the board, Moses Margoliot, who absolutely repudiates halacha and writes this anti-work against modern Judaism as well, following his mentor, McCall. But Margoliot, too, is somehow caught up with his Jewish identity. He writes in the same book an essay to his Christian friends saying, I want you to know that even though I have broken from the halacha, I love Jewish learning. I love Jewish history. I love Sephardic Jewish history. He talks about Halevi. He talks about the Spanish poets. He talks about Moses Maimonides. Uh, he goes on and on. He talks about biblical poetry. He waxes eloquently about how significant Jewish learning is for the world and how much we need it. So his kind of movement is a movement from uh, uh, out of faith, obviously, but into a kind of uh, academic or intellectual world of Judaism, which he wants to preserve and give back to Christianity. Uh, so it, it, we're talking about here, uh, notice the various paths that these people are moving, and notice that they, uh, somehow both religions are, are somehow informing uh, and inspiring uh, uh, their words. Go on, let's see a few more, and I'm going to stop with this. Um, now, uh, we're back to McCall. So um, this is a work which is remarkable for an historian. Uh, it is a work called Israel Avenged. And it is written by Yitzhak. So, it, so it, uh, it is based, it is an, an answer to a 17th century Murano scholar in Amsterdam named Isaac Arobio de Castro. Uh, in my Amsterdam lecture, I don't know if I mentioned his name. There were so many names that I could mention. But this was one of the major thinkers of the 17th century. 
and he wrote a polemic against Christianity. It was translated into French, and it circulated particularly among uh, enlightened circles in modern Europe. I mean, this is an unbelievable story. I'm complicating matters, but, but follow me through here, because I just want to show you how an historian reconstructs and picks up the little pieces. So how does, uh, how does McCall get to this work? Well, uh, there was a Sephardic community in, in London. I mentioned that in my Amsterdam lecture. Uh, it was a kind of, uh, you know, Amsterdam was, the, was, the, was the, the, the home church, so to speak, and the conversos came to London. Uh, illegally, they came in and they established the synagogue, which is today the Bevis Mark Synagogue uh, in East End. Uh, and it is a great Sephardic synagogue, which looks identical to the synagogue in Amsterdam. Um, and there uh, was uh, a community of Jews uh, in England who were Sephardic Jews. One of them was a 19th century woman whose parents were Sephardim, named Grace Aguilar. Ever hear the name before? Who, who knows the name? Tell me about Grace Aguilar. I just know oh, just know the name. Okay, all right. My son-in-law was Sephardic Jew. All right. So Grace Aguilar is a Jewish novelist, and she writes novels in which she praises the Jewish people and talks about the Jewish past. She has recently been revived in the history of English literature in the 19th century. She died at a very young age, uh, but she was clearly a, a, a remarkable uh, a female figure uh, in the history of, uh, of literature in England, and clearly she expresses strongly, she became sick and she died at a very young age, but she expresses strongly her Jewish identity. In the course, her father asked her to translate Isaac Arobio into English. So she came up with a small translation of two chapters of this polemical work written by a former Christian who returned to Judaism against Catholicism, uh, against religion in general. Uh, she published it in a private uh, a version of it because she was afraid to share it with uh, a large public. Of course, McCall saw it, and he was, you'll forgive the expression, pissed off. Uh, so he published two volumes against Isaac Arobio. So for me, I mean, I'm an early modern historian. 17th century, the 19th century is talking to the 17th century, and they go back and forth. So, and what is interesting here is he says, you know, there's this guy, Isaac Arobio. But the guy that you should really know about in the 17th century is someone I did speak about in my lecture called Uriel da, da Costa. Da Costa was a free thinker who was persecuted by the Ma'amad, by the Jewish community of Amsterdam, and ultimately committed suicide because he was so uh, upset. He had returned to Judaism and didn't want to observe the rabbinic law. He says, those are the real Jews of Amsterdam that you should be talking about. They are what we call papery. In other words, this is a Protestant Christian who hates Catholics as much as he hates Jews, or more than he hates Jews. And therefore, what he does is he, he argues that essentially that experience, that Isaac Arobio, were, that is popery. And popery, Pope, you know, popery, Catholicism is worse. Those are the bad Christians that made the Inquisition. Those were the bad Christians that persecuted the Jews over. We Protestants, we are enlightened. We don't do such a thing. We just offer our love to the Jews and thus have them approach the baptismal font. So uh, very interesting, juxtaposing himself vis-a-vis -vis Catholicism on the one hand, a Protestant, and also in terms of a 17th century Jewish thinker. Just a few more. Oh, I went on Amazon just to show you all of McCall's books. You can buy them. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not selling them or anything, but 
Yes, you see them all. They're, they're all republication. Re they're still being used to, uh, to convert Jews. Go on. Um, all right, so now, uh, just to show you how complicated this world is. I said that Nitivot Olam, this anti-Talmudic work, was published uh, in 1839. I have no idea this time when I started. I can't even read my watch. How much time did I spend already? Uh, I would say about half an hour. Okay, all right. Okay, so we're aiming for 25 after. Okay. Um, 1839. 1840, what happened? Big day in Jewish history. Anybody know? Good man, yeah, good man. This is an impressive group. Damascus blood libel. You know what that is? You know what a blood libel is? We, do we talk about blood libels here? I don't recall. I mean, it's all blended into one. So the blood libel is, comes from the Middle Ages, you know, blaming the Jews for killing a Christian child, a child to get blood out of them for matzahs on Passover. This is ubiquitous charge, which begins uh, in England in Norwich, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in uh, Simon, the, of Simon of Trent. Well, yeah. that Simon of Trent is 1475. Um, from uh, the 13th century, 12th, end of 12th, 13th century on, we have hundreds of examples of blood libels. But you would think of this as being more of a medieval thing. But we now have discovered that in the modern era, the blood libel continues in all kinds of countries. In 1840, a, uh, a Christian accused uh, a Jew of murdering one of their children, and the government in Damascus uh, reinforced uh, and sought to uh, arrest the, the Jews. But the difference in 1840, uh, and here is the same Moses Montefiore, is that the Jewish community of the world mounts an enormous uh, campaign of publicity. Uh, the Jewish historian who unfortunately died just a few years ago, Jonathan Franco, has reconstructed this entire history of response on the part of Jews, uh, a kind of anti-defamation league which emerges in 1840, which tries to get the entire world to repudiate this horrible charge which should have stayed in the Middle Ages and never moved forward. Of course, it does, it continues to move forward. There are many more in the 19th century. The famous Baelish uh, case uh, in the 20th century, this continues right through, uh, 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 right up until the Holocaust. But the Damascus affair is remarkable in terms of the Jewish response. Notice this is our same McCall writing a critique of the Damascus charges and saying, I, as a good missionary who loves Jews, is standing up for Jews. This kind of reminds me of the evangelical supporting Bibi. Maybe there's a parallel here, right? I don't want to get into any politics. But, uh, uh, but notice where this is coming. This is evangelical Christianity, of course. This is an evangelical missionary that we're speaking about. Now, you can see the title of this work. Go on now, Ari, a couple more. I just want to show you what we're talking about. There is, I repeat, no evidence whatsoever, whether oral or written, Gentile, Jewish, or Christian, to prove in any one case that the Jews do or ever did use Christian blood for any of the purposes above specified, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a very strong, he write, writes a whole uh, pamphlet on this. Go on. Um, uh, and here is a list of competent witnesses. These are people that essentially uh, are not afraid or ashamed <coughs> to give their name. So go on. We'll see the list. 
Uh, we, the undersigned by a nation, Jews, and having lived to the years of maturity in the faith and practice of modern Judaism, but now, by the grace of God, members of the Church of Christ, do solemnly protest that we have never directly nor indirectly heard of, much less known amongst the Jews of the practice of killing Christians or using blood. Go on. And look at all these names. So they had some success. Uh, I can identify uh, many of these names, uh, and as I get more and more into this underground world of Jews who left the Jewish fold and Christianity, some of them are really quite distinguished. You will see Stanislav Hoga is there. It's not very clear to see it this way. It's there, S. Hoga. You, know, you see S. Hoga, right? Yeah, and Moses Margolio, who I also mentioned, should be there as well. There he is, right there. Um, and these are all, most of them Eastern European Jews or German Jews who were caught up in the net of the London Society and became uh, uh, not only clergy, but in many cases missionaries. Uh, keep going, and you'll see more names. Um, so it, what we have here is a very interesting uh, situation. These are converts, but yet they are standing up now for the Jewish people. Uh, what to make of them? Yes? Uh, would you say the converts were drawn from the educated class? Well, according to Todd Edelman, they're all poor Jew. Well, or, all right, so the situation was this. In the London Society, uh, and I was going to, there are so many texts here, I, I'm not going to be able to do it all tonight, but I want to go a little farther. Uh, I just want to see where we are. All right, so this is sketches. Oh, so here is his remarks about the nobility of Jewish culture, but let me answer your question. Um, clearly, um, the polemic of McCall, let me answer it through McCall, but then I'll, 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 I'll generalize. McCall's approach is to argue for three points. First of all, he knows that in the history of Jewish Christian polemics, what people do are latch onto the Midrash, onto homiletical stories, take them out of context to show that Jesus can be found in rabbinic literature and in Judaism and so on. He's not going to do that. He's going to do two things. He's going to look at halacha, which he knows intimately. I mean, that's what's really dangerous about this guy. He really knows Judaism. So he's going to look at the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, and he's going to make statements about Judaism using the code. Second of all, he's going to use the standard Orthodox prayer book. If it says it in the prayer book, it must be a Jewish position. And then he's going to undermine Judaism with basically three points. Number one, Jews have a double standard in terms of morality. They treat Jews one way and they treat Goyim another way. And therefore, Jews are not a, Judaism is not a humane religion because, indeed, there are, are double standards. And particularly to Christians like us that are good-faring, good human beings, God-faring human beings, look, look at the way you treat us. The second point is to argue that essentially, and here gets to your point, the rabbis are so severe, they make it so hard, and kosher meat is so expensive that the poor suffer. Essentially, he makes an economic argument. Now, see, these are old, old arguments that go back to the Middle Ages, but in the way that I'm presenting them now, they have a modern resonance, a 19th century resonance is what I'm saying. So he goes on and on to show how halakha makes people impoverished, makes people poor, and somehow manipulates and, and, and exploits uh, the poor classes. And the third point that he's going to make uh, is essentially that women are treated like crap in Judaism, unlike us Christians that, are so, that treat our women so noble. Uh, of course, that is a bogus argument because uh, However, Jews treat women, uh, Christians are, uh, Christian women are treated 
uh, in a similar fashion. We're still, we haven't entered the world of, of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, uh, of, of equality of gender and, and the feminist movement. We are, we are a long way before that. Um, let me just, I'm not gonna, we can't read all these texts, obviously, but I just wanna show you, this is about how he loves Jewish culture. And what is particularly interesting here is his love of learning. Uh, maybe I can get over there and just read a few lines. Um, he goes on to describe, these are unusual channels in which Jewish thought is directed, the Talmud and its compendium, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, logic and metaphysics are found more or less in all, particularly in the writings of Maimonides, nor are the Jews of the present day students only the printing presses of Slovatka, Vilna, Lublin, Warsaw, and Krakow. He's talking about Jewish books and he loves them. He's, he's infatuated with them. Uh, I, I wanted the, the last, I, I talked about two of the scenes when I, I didn't get to the third one. The third one was that he discovers a whole, he's, he's in a, Berlin and he discovers a whole series of Jewish books he wants to buy for the library of the missionary. And he waxes eloquently about Jewish books. So here's another example of that same text. Go on, next page. Uh, so, so, you know, I mean, just read it. I mean, the extent that, he, he, here's a guy that's supposed to be the enemy of the Jews, but he's talking about the nobility of Jewish culture, the intellect of Jews, their remarkable uh, 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 cultural world, which he is really much a part of. Uh, look at the names of Jamnia, that's Yavna and Tiberius, Nahardia, Sura, Pompadita, will attest the power of the Jewish mind, the history of the, Jewish, of, of the Jews prove incontrovertibly that as long as a nation retains a love for its religion, even though the religion have a considerable admixture of error, it can never sink into barbarism. The body may be, and so on and so forth. So uh, praises, keep, keep going, I just want to show you. So here, I, I'm not gonna read this, it's too small, but this is the intolerance. He speaks about, uh, for example, um, from the Seder. Shvo chamatcha alagoyim. You know that in the Seder? I mean, he knows exactly where to look for this stuff, right? Uh, and he finds, you know, pour out thy wrath on the Gentiles. Yeah, he's talking about us. Why do, you, why do you hate us so much? What do we ever do to you? And he goes on about the intolerance. <laughs> yeah, well, we know what, they, what he did. Uh, all right, go on. Uh, no, notice, look, all right. So here, the inhumane treatment of the poor. That was my second uh, point that I made. Uh, go on to the third. And now the degradation of women. Uh, let me read a little bit of this. The spirit of rabbinism, it is which degrades womankind and does not suffer her to exercise the faculties which God has given. Rabbinism lays it down as an axiom that to study the law of God is, is no part of a woman's duty and that to, touch his daughters, to teach his daughters the word of God is no part of paternal obligation. He's, gonna, he's going to try to show the, the difference of gender and, and the privilege of men over women and so on. Of course, he's not going to talk about his own Christianity and the inequalities that exist there, but he wants to make a strong case. But notice how this is a 19th century argument. We didn't find this in the Middle Ages, worrying about women. And what I want to add, by the way, because I'm probably not going to get to it, in Sketches of Judaism, the other book that I mentioned, there's a long section about Jewish women. Uh, he discovers a book which he translates into English. It's an amazing, uh, do you know uh, a group of, uh, of prayers called Chinus? Tehinot in Hebrew. You know what Tehinot is? Got something else? Yiddish. Well, yeah, Tehinot or Tehinot. I mean, Hebrew, Yiddish. It's the same, same thing. Yeah. What is it? Anybody ever hear? Women do. Yeah, yeah. Women do. You got it. You got it. What is? So these are prayers. First of all, written by men, but then eventually written by women. Right. Chava. What's her last name? 
There is a war, there's a whole book on this by an American uh, feminist scholar about these prayers. They deal with you know making making challah and menstruation and women's moments, so to speak. Um, and they are some very beautiful prayers. And by the 19th century, women are writing their own prayers. There's a woman named Chava Bat, I forgot her name, and she's, she's the hero of this recent book on, on these prayers. He discovers a book of Trinot, and he is infatuated with the idea that there is a kind of spirituality among women which the rabbis have put down. So he starts translating these prayers. I mean, it's really quite amazing that he knows about this book, he publishes, and he gives us, for the, so this woman, Chava Weisler, that's the name, you could find the book on Amazon, Chava Weisler. Chava had published a translation of one of the key poems, and I found the same translation 100 years earlier in uh, Missionary, Alexander McCall. So here he's attacking Judaism for the way it treats women, and at the same time he's talking about the nobility and the spirituality of women uh, when you look at their own individual liturgy. Go on just a few more, and I'm going to uh, move really quickly now. I'm going to finish with this, because I'm, uh, are we going? Oh, okay, they were, okay. So this is on Reformed Judaism, in which he takes credit for Reformed Judaism. I think I'll pass that on, go on. Uh, this is the one on Arobio and Uriel de Costa, where he compared, Uriel de Costa, remember, was the one who committed suicide in Amsterdam, and which he argues essentially for the poppery of Jews. So we talked about that already, okay. Uh, notice how haphazard they are. So this is where we'll stop for a second. So I'm, I'm, a bit, as I'm running all over the place here, but it's all there. You just have to put it together, the pieces. You'll excuse me for uh, the lack of organization tonight. Um, but generally, here is the profile. A missionary who loves Jews, who loves Jewish women, who loves Jewish books especially, who is really, uh, it's a love-hate relationship. You can't say, I think he honestly loves Jews. And then he takes his family and he trains them in Judaism. And then they, uh, the, the, and particularly his knowledge of Hebrew. I mean, that's what's incredible here. He's an Hebraist. Um, among his books is a translation of the commentary of Rabbi David Kimchi, a medieval exegete on the book of Isaiah. I mean, that's scholarship. I mean, that's not just uh, a translation. Um, we have all kinds of sermons that he gave, and you know, for 50 years, he was a member of the London Society. Uh, he really believed that his convert missionaries would go to Palestine, would go to Jerusalem, and there they would lead us to the redemption. I guess what I should say about this evangelical Christianity is that ultimately we are speaking about the second coming. We're, these are restorationists. They want to restore the land of Israel to its present place. At the end of his life, he suffered a setback because it turned out these poor Eastern European Jews wearing Christian garb, who now were missionaries, simply didn't fit in socially to the, uh, you know, the Protestants who were already in Jerusalem. So he hears about in the early, a couple of years before he dies, of an actual fistfight that broke out between uh, some of his converts uh, and the Christians who were already living there. And he says, how can you treat these people? We have done this remarkable redemptive work and you're socially isolating them. So he actually attacks his own London society a couple of years before he dies. Uh, McCall is a very conflicted and complex individual. In other words, I don't usually care about missionaries and I usually try to stay away from them. Uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 but nevertheless, here is a situation, uh, and I haven't looked uh, lately, I guess I've got a... Trojan horse. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure, I mean, a missionary obviously wants to take away what is precious to us. At the same time, there is a very complex relationship with Judaism. And what emerged among the converts, so on the one level I studied him, on the second level I studied the, some of the converts and their own paths, which are so complex, which are so mixed up, you know, uh, which share in these Jewish Christian elements. We are speaking about mingled identities, about braided identities, about identities which are neither Christian nor Jewish, but somewhere in between. There are also a whole group of Christians like McCall in England in the same period of time that are rediscovering their own identity with Judaism, returning as we saw in the case of the Mishnah or in the case of the Kabbalah. In other words, these are similar kinds of stories if, if, if of course, the context is totally different. And then finally, let me talk about this. So I don't know where, I, what, was I supposed to finish uh, Ari very soon? I don't remember. All right, good, all right, so that's fine. Um, so look at all these responses here. That's why it interested me, because I was interested in studying Jewish thought as a kind of response to Christianity. Um, of course, as you know, if you look at the history of modern Jewish thought, first of all, it's mostly German. The key people here are Eastern European. Jewish thought in Eastern Europe has not been studied adequately because it's not as systematic. It's not written in Western languages. It's written in Hebrew primarily or in Yiddish. Uh, and therefore, much more work has to be done on the history of Eastern European thought. But if you look at the German core of modern Jewish thinkers, so you start, for example, with Abraham Geiger, who I'm speaking about in another lecture. I think that's the crazy one at 8.30 in the morning on Saturday. Uh, I would never have done that if I would have known, but it's too late, right? I can't, I can't back out of it. All right, I probably won't even be awake then, but I'm going to be there. Um, but uh, Abraham Geiger, the founder of Reform Judaism, uh, or Samson Raphael Hirsch. This, this is the pantheon of Jewish thinkers, so they're all writing in German. Uh, and then you jump uh, to the end of the 19th century to Hermann Cohn. And then you go to Leo Beck, and you go to uh, Buber, and you go to Rosenzweig, and you go to Heschel. In other words, this is, this is the pantheon of Jewish thinkers. All of them are dealing with Christianity one way or the other. Buber writes a book called Two Types of Faith about Judaism and Christianity. Rosenzweig almost converts to, uh, he, he, uh, to Christianity, but he rediscovers Judaism in a synagogue in East, in East Berlin uh, on Yom Kippur Eve, on Kol Nidre. Uh, Leo Beck writes uh, a work called Romantic Religion, which is his own polemic against Christianity. So in other words, so much of Jewish thought, and I could of course go way back to the early modern period or the medieval period to make the same claim, that so much of our own self-articulation is in relationship to the other. We need to explain ourselves to the other. So the beauty of these works, and here is the, the work that I've been concentrating on now, is this, Achia Shiloni Achoseh and Zerubbabel. This book is about six, 700 pages. It took me months to go through it. This one is shorter, but both of them are brilliant expositions of rabbinic Judaism. Here is Levinson. Let me just give one or two responses. So he writes, of course, much later, but notice how Jews were indeed answering, responding, arguing back, and understanding themselves through this whole process. Uh, the other important person is Samuel uh, Yosef Fien. Uh, that, that was never published. It's in manuscript, um, but I've read it. Uh, and the other important person here on the list is, well, Kazin is a rabbi in Damascus who is writing about McCall. Notice how McCall's writings get as far as the Middle East. Um, and uh, the one other one I'm looking for is Eliezer's Bible, Sonny Gore, 
uh, which is, a, uh, these are really important Maskilim. They are important figures within Eastern Europe. All of them are composing works against McCall and in so doing, and I'll just give you the example of Levinson and we will sort of end with him. Um, Levinson uh, attempts to argue, look, you, you think you know rab rabbinics, but I want to tell you what it takes to be a rabbinic scholar. You have to know your Talmud. You quote out of context, you really don't understand Talmud like a real Talmudist knows. But more than that, you need to know ancient history. You need to know ancient Christianity. You need to know Semitic languages. In other words, you need to be a kind of university scholar. It's very interesting. He's now painting the picture of the Talmud Chacham, but the Talmud Chacham, in his eyes, becomes uh, a kind of scholar of all fields. What is incredible about this response is that Levinson spends hundreds of pages talking about the history of Christianity and the theology of Christianity and argues that essentially Jews and Christians are not alike and that the humanity of Jews is far significant, more significant than that of Christianity. Christianity is in no position to tell Jews how to be Jews. What, but what emerges is also an historical treatment of Judaism. He argues, for example, that yes, the, the Bible is divine, the Mishnah is divine, but the rabbinic writings that follow are simply rational human interpretations based on the exigencies of the time and therefore can be changed over time. What emerges is almost a kind of Zacharia Frankel Judaism. Who is Zacharia Frankel? Uh, some of you are good conservative Jews here. He's the founder of conservative Judaism. In other words, we, I had Geiger, Frankel, Hirsch's neo-orthodoxy. Frankel writes a work called Darkeha Mishnah in which he argues essentially that Judaism changes slowly, not like Reformed <coughs> Judaism, and it changes with a reverence for tradition. This is the Jewish Logical Seminary of America. I read that in, um, in Levinson. Levinson is arguing using history deep appreciation of rabbinics and rabbinic culture and offering us a remarkable reformed kind of Judaism. In other words, Judaism which is rational, enlightened, uh, and so on. One of the most stirring passages in Levinson comes at the end of Shiloni, which is a kind of dialogue between an enlightened Jew and an enlightened Christian, in which he wants to paint the picture of what it's like to live in a Christian world in Poland. He talks about the taverns. He talks about the drunkards. He talks about uh, men and women sleeping with each other. It is, a, it is really a, a horrible, an ugly portrait of Christianity. And then the next page that follows, he talks about Shabbos and the candles and the family gathering around the Jewish community. It's a totally unfair portrait, of course. But for him, it's, you know, it's the Goy versus the Jew, and he sees it in clear, very clear, distinct terms. And he can't stand the fact that McCall has spoken about the inhumanity and the, the lack of cultural level of Jews. Who, who the hell is he talking about? Jews are a noble group. But of course, as we saw, McCall is conflicted, right? McCall still loves the nobility of Jewish culture at the same time he criticizes it. I mean, he speaks about rabbinic texts uh, and rabbinic learning, uh, at the same time, he sees the rabbis as the, as, as the impediment uh, to finding uh, the Christian faith. I don't know what you're going to make of all of this. You're going to say, you know, what do I care? Uh, and what do I want to hear about this? But, you know, these questions still impinge upon our own identity today. Um, uh, let me give you an example of the modern world. Now, jump forward. 
There's a guy who teaches at Indiana University. Uh, he's well known. Um, yeah, have you had him here? Did he talk about his understanding of Judaism? He talked about the uh, secret uh, uh, embedded in Hasidism that's very uh, similar to early Christian. Okay, yeah. so that's one of his books, but you didn't see his big book on theology. So what he essentially argues, he, this is a guy, Shaul Magid, he's a professor at Indiana University. About a year and a half ago. Very learned guy. I got to know him the past year. He was, at, he was in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, we, he, he, he works in all kinds of things, but particularly Hasidism. Um, but he wrote a work um, uh, uh, about post-sectarian uh, Judaism. It's an enormous book, it's about 500 pages in which he essentially argues that the world that we have lived in up to now is a world of dividing and classifying and setting up a boundary maintenance between Jews and Christians, between Orthodox Jews, non-Orthodox, etc. Our world no longer uh, is about boundary maintenance but boundary crossings. And that ultimately the meaningful world that we have is to take our Judaism and to share it with Christianity and to blend into the larger culture. We can make a greater contribution to Western culture, Western civilization, by not only allowing intermarriage, but encouraging it. Um, and therefore, and this is the reality of the Jewish community anyway. I mean, either we can fight it or we can embrace it. Um, he goes on page after page. Uh, it is not a position, of course, which I take. Uh, but I recognize the problem into marriage is a, a problem which every one of us faces in one way or the other. Um, we live in a world where, you know, uh, if we're speaking about the non-Orthodox, 70% uh, of our, uh, our, uh, our children marry outside the faith. Some of them retain their Jewish identity and some of them don't, but it is a struggle. Um, and clearly uh, the Orthodox I wouldn't say are gleeful, but uh, they're clearly aware that they will ultimately become the only real Jews who remain, the saving remnant, so on. A smaller community, but a community that is reinforced. And I must say, in all the years as a, as a, as a, as a professor teaching uh, for 40 years at universities, particularly at Penn, um, teaching Orthodox Jewish kids that come out of day schools, um, and who are liberal enough to study with me, obviously you have to be liberal, I study missionaries and all kinds of crazy things, um, so, um, uh, but those kids have a certain commitment to Judaism. Uh, I tried to help the Reformed Jewish community on campus, but it's a, it's a struggle. I mean, these kids don't have that kind of background, that education, that exposure. Uh, you, you just don't do it overnight, you know? I mean, and you can't get them. Some of them I get involved. There is an active Reformed Jewish community on campus and a, a large conservative community, of course, um, but still it is a struggle. So. The story of missionaries, of Jews for Jesus, of mingle identities. Um, it's not that we're so afraid of missionaries. Uh, you know, they're all around anyway. Uh, but clearly, the enticement of the majority culture or the place, or when we hear about, there's a whole, I could give a whole lecture on the notion Judeo-Christian heritage. Have you heard that line before? The hyphenated. What is that, that? What the hell does that mean? It means that Judaism is superseded by Christianity and the two are linked together. That's the original meaning of that term. So when you use it, be very suspicious of, of, of its origin. Um, Arthur Cohen once wrote a book called uh, um, The Myth of, the Jewish, Christi of, of, Jewish, Christi of, of, of Jewish Christian Heritage and so on. Uh, I'm not going to be Bernie uh, and go on and on and on. I promise you, I'm stopping. Uh, but um, 
that's my friend Bernie uh, Cooperman. Um, uh, he doesn't know when to begin. But look, I, I, I gave you, I gave you a, a, a topic here, which I'm working on. I still haven't read all of this stuff and absorbed it and put it into context. But I, I just want to show you that I think it's a very significant and very relevant topic for our own world. Uh, it is about Jews understanding themselves against Christianity. It is about Christians exploring in all kinds of ways, not perhaps the ways that I looked at earlier, the two previous lectures in this course, but nevertheless, is what I want to show you. The missionary isn't simply uh, a fabrenta Christian who cares only about Christianity and hates Judaism. It's much more complicated than that, um, as you see. And clearly, the products of this merger, the converts themselves, are neither Jewish nor Christian. They're, they're a kind of merger of both. The mingled identity is, we are all mingled identities. In some way or another, we are living in, in two cultures or more than two cultures. And we draw from all of those cultures and we try to define ourselves against all of these cultures. I'm just about finished. Uh, so what I'm doing here, therefore, is looking at something, uh, as I've done in so many of my other lectures, which speaks to our world in one way or the other. What I want to try to show you in historical context, all of these texts have never been studied. Um, I am dipping in and I'm learning as I go along. Uh, and I'm seeing how these Jews, of course, face the challenge of our day as we face ours. So I'm going to end with that. And now you can ask questions. I, I have two quick questions. So I, I read a book called The Lost Book of Moses. Um, just came out by Tigay. And he talks about the... Uh, he was my colleague. Hanan Tigay? Oh, Hanan is the son of yeah. Jeffrey Tigay, who was right. a professor of, of Bible right. at, at Penn. He's in, yeah, so Hanan is up at Stanford. Right, Stanford. right. So he, in, in the book, which is a very interesting book, he talks about uh, the Anglican Church in Jerusalem. So that, I think it's part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, James Finn and so, Elizabeth Finn. Right, yeah. so if you, so I, but I never heard of this. So, but if anybody goes to Jerusalem, you've got to go to this Anglican Church. Yeah, yeah. apparently there's no, well, at least there's something new now, but historically had no Christological images, no crosses. And the walls are covered with Hebrew prayers. Right. So it fits right in. It was right. a way right. to proselytize Jews in Israel. Yes. And the story, the Lost Book of Moses, about yes. this one guy who was a proselyte. Yes. And this book that he claimed was the Lost Book of right. Moses. Right. I, was, of course, was talking about the story in Eastern Europe right. and the story in England. But there's an enormous story about these missionaries in Israel in the 19th century. They play a very interesting role. <laughs> the early, the old Yeshuv, Jews have to encounter them all over the place. Uh, and uh, as you see, I mean, they're, 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 they're mixed up in terms of what they're doing and, and they're embracing, you know, love, hate, all of this is, is right, right. In, in this remarkable I, story. I understand that they actually, their services are held in Hebrew. And yeah. they, they pull in. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my exactly. question though is. Well, his um, service in England was in Hebrew. So it's very interesting. My question, so it fits into that book. My question is, why would Eastern European Jews allow McCall to come in and study with them? Why uh, I mean, particularly if they know what he's doing, but even right, if they don't, you're right, an outsider right, coming in and studying. Right. Well, um, most of them, of course, couldn't stand it, and uh, they they were uh, they re they repelled him as best they could. But he persisted. He tells uh, in this long account by Elizabeth Finn, which I did not go into, she recounts how his father and his colleague traveled from little shtetl to little shtetl and how they lived in barns and they ate uh, cheese and they just to meet with the one Jew or two Jews or three Jews here and there. Uh, he tells the story, for example, of they began to, to translate uh, um, the entire Old and New Testament um, 
into from from uh, from Hebrew and 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 to translate the, no to put the New Testament into Hebrew. So um, they were going over their Hebrew and their Hebrew was pretty good, but they they needed the help of a Jew who really knew how to read Hebrew. So uh, they sort of snuck paid a Jew off, but gave him some money, and he starts working and reading their uh, manuscript until the wife hears about it and she goes berserk and breaks into the room and says, get this guy out of here. He's not going to hang around missionaries. And she pulls him out and so on. So there's a lot of tension going on. And they don't obviously succeed in converting large numbers. But nevertheless, they're there. But there's an even, uh, there's a, there's an even deeper question. The relationship between the Haskalah and the missionaries is one we are now exploring. See, on the one hand, there were a group of Jews working with the Polish and, and uh, Russia control this area, the Russian government, the Tsar, to reform the Jewish schools, to make them masculine schools, schools where they would be studying mathematics and science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The mission, at the same time, the missionaries were perceived by the Tsar as being kind of enlightened figures coming from the West. Why not bring them into, into, the, into the, 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 the circle? One of my colleagues uh, in Poland has just written an article for a volume that I'm publishing on the enlightened school of Warsaw, where the missionaries enter, and they end up converting several of the of the Talmide, of the members of, of the of the yeshiva. In other words, these kids are are, are vulnerable. The, the missionaries come in with their enlightenment and so on. They start studying Bible together, and all of a sudden, something happens. So in, again, it's 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 small numbers, but nevertheless, they they are very patient and they kind of penetrate the fringes and sort of enter into the community. Did they transform this community uh, of converts? No. I should also add another uh, footnote, and that is a new book, a number, an, 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 another of my students named Ellie Schenker, who teaches at Emory University. Her book just came out from Stanford. It is a book about conversion to Christianity and Greek orthodoxy on the part of Russian Jews. She, the London, this, is, this is in the second half of the 19th century, and she discovers something which Todd Edelman had missed entirely. She, working in the archives in Russia, there were many Jews who simply converted for a very simple reason. These are not ideologues, because they fell in love with a Christian, uh, because of human relationships, because of pragmatic reasons, you know, but and really love plays a major role here. Um, she has her own profiles of intellectual converts who did, who study Christianity and Judaism and even Greek Orthodoxy or Russian Orthodoxy is what I'm trying to say. Um, so the story is even more complex and we have even more converts that are involved. But again, the numbers, which, you know, the Pale of Settlement still retains its Jewish identity uh, for the most part. Um, but nevertheless, these guys are persistent. The other interesting thing, I mean, re, they, they publish journals. I, I, I have, I have, Unbelievable amount, of, and they describe every day what they're doing and how they're working and how they're meeting this Jew and that Jew. One by one, they are going to save the Jewish Sounds world like for Christ. <laughs> yeah, like Chabad. I mean, I, well, there's certain parallels, at least sociologically. Yes. Did, did any of these missionaries become Jews? Um, well, yes, because, well, you see, the missionaries who follow McCall, many of them are former Jews. Some of them are, like the case of Hoga, but there are several others 
who kind of revert back to their Jewishness, or at least a form of Jewishness. Again, I mean, what do you call Hoga who observes halakha but says he still believes in Jesus? Uh, what is he? Uh, I mean, he, he's a Shomer Shabbos, you know? But of course, we have Messianic Jews like that, don't we? That's, that, uh, that do the same thing. And of course, we see them as repugnant and they're not part of the Jewish community. But again, there's, a, there's an interesting history here. Uh, and what are we to make of people that are drawing from two religions? Are they, do, you know, can we uh, at some level, like Magid, accept this reality and, and sort of, you know, if you want to play. I'll give you another example, which I gave in my Amsterdam lecture. I love cemeteries. I spend a lot of time taking people to cemeteries. Uh, you know, Jewish cemeteries are more or less intact, particularly in Germany of all places. The Nazis didn't destroy the Jewish cemeteries. So there's a cemetery in Hamburg of conversos. These were Spanish, Portuguese, Jew, uh, Christians who returned to Judaism in Hamburg. Believe it or not, I mean, talking about mingle identities, I mean, this is another example of the history of conversion. There are gravestones in this cemetery. It's an unbelievable cemetery. It's the greatest place because it's in, have you ever been to Hamburg? Hamburg is a beautiful German city. I don't know how many of you go to Germany. Like, I'm sugar and I go to Germany. But Hamburg is also very important for Jewish history. Um, so Hamburg has this cemetery of Ashkenazim, and all these famous rabbis are buried there, but it also has a Sephardic cemetery where all these conversos who came to Hamburg as a free port, like Amsterdam, ended up in Hamburg. There are gravestones with crosses and mug and dovids on the same gravestone, covering both bases, all right? Shaul Magid's dream, I guess, I don't know. Uh, I, you know, that's not the way I think, but nevertheless, uh, you know, let's put our own challenges of being Jewish in historical context is all I'm saying. These things existed before. Go on. Let's do two more questions. These many texts that were written come from the intelligentsia. Did any of this percolate down to the common Jew to kind of immunize them and teach them what the uh, missionaries were up to and maybe give them some, uh, some defenses for, uh, for what we might done to them. That's one question. Another question, you presented the London Society as a rather well-heeled and maybe a large group of, uh, uh, a large society. They raised um, lots of money at least, they, um, yeah. Uh, but they really didn't achieve no. the goal of converting everybody. Was no. there any backlash when they, uh, a frustration when, when they didn't achieve their goals? That's interesting, those are two excellent questions. So the first question had to do with, you know, how did this, what, you're talking about this literature or the Christian this, literature? This, no, this, this, literature? This literature. See, the problem, if you look at the dates here, um, Levinson was working in isolation in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe. He published this work in 1864, and this one, this is a second edition. The other, this one was published in 1863. The work was published in 39, so it, it had no impact. They were, came out much, you know, 20, 30 years later. Uh, did a lot of people read this text? Hardly. I'm giving a lecture on Levinson in Jerusalem after I, I, I leave London, and um, no one has read these two books. So I, I, you're, you're right. They had very little impact except on a group of intellectuals. He, his Zerubbabel is so Talmudic. He's using page after page of Talmudic text. He's a real, he's a real yeshiva man. I mean, he's a, he's a maskil, but he also really knows his, his Gomorrah. Uh, and he's giving us, I mean, who could read this text other than a really learned Jew uh, who is really educated and also is historical and understands the context in which, uh, the things he's talking about. 
So you're absolutely right, uh, the impact on the common Jew. And remember, I, the other thing I, didn't, I, I kind of said, but I didn't, it didn't fully come out, Lund society, particularly in England, was dealing, with, uh, a was dealing with a situation where there were a lot of poor Jews. This is what Todd Edelman has written about so well. In other words, there were a lot of impoverished Jews who were coming to Lund society because they were getting free bread and free food uh, and free clothing. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, and, and the Jews were very upset by that because their, their charity system, their tzedakah system wasn't working as well as in society. Um, so those kind of Jews were not affected by responses and were, were also, but not also affected by intellectual arguments made by Christians. I mean, how many people could read uh, Nitivot Olam, uh, uh, McCall's book, except intellectuals? I mean, I, 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 you could find it online. There are several editions of it, including the English version, Read some of that stuff. I mean, it's really powerful uh, prose. When I finished the book, I was convinced I was going to become a Christian. And until I read Levinson, I only turned to Judaism. Uh, I mean, it's really, I mean, he really knows his Talmud, and he's really making arguments that make us sound really bad. And I could see why uh, these Jews were challenged to respond. But did it affect the common Jew? No. The second question was, remind me. Was there a backlash when the society was not overwhelmingly successful? They lasted through the 20th century. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there were people who were very critical of this approach and saw it as uh, rather meaningless and ineffectual. Um, but nevertheless, they still were able. It wasn't like they had, you know, uh, they, they were large only because they had the support of a large, uh, rich community of, of, of uh, Anglo-Protestants uh, and, and the tacit support of, of the Anglican Church and of the government. Um, but they eventually sort of withered out rather than, uh, I mean, there were periods when they, for a while they were thrown out of Poland and then came back in, uh, but they were then elsewhere, North Africa, uh, the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, backlash, no, but ultimately uh, they sort of dried up. It was very interesting, um, at the end of the 19th century, in the archives of the Society, I found a, um, it was a, um, kind of sheet that all missionaries had to fill out. What are your most effective titles for converting Jews? In the, uh, they mentioned my book, Netivot Olam, the, uh, the Ways of the World. By the end of the 19th century, several of the missionaries are saying, these are great old arguments, but they don't work anymore. It's irrelevant to our, our world. Nobody reads this stuff. So uh, I guess you know, they, beca they became tired as this whole Jewish-Christian debate after a while becomes tired. I should add, I know he wants me to finish, but one of the most beautiful parts of Levinson's book, which begins the book, even though he then violates it by then attacking Christianity, as I pointed out, he says, you know, the futility of debate, what are we arguing about? Our ultimate concerns are, are in our heart. We can't change each other's heart. Why don't we just leave us alone? Jewish-Christian debate is about power relations anyway. The Christians always have the upper hand because they are the ones that are staging this whole stupid thing. He lists all of the previous medieval debates, and he says, look, where is this led except futility? Why don't you just accept the fact that we have our faith, you have our faith, and we'll embrace each other as human beings? I mean, it's a remarkable statement, which he makes in the beginning, but then, of course, he realizes that it's not practical, and he's going to go on and then attack Christianity. Um, but clearly, that's the, anyone who, who devotes himself to the study of Jewish-Christian debate will ultimately become tired of all of this and wonder why does it continue and why should it go on. Uh, I was once a, um, a lecturer at, at the, in 
Chautauqua Society. Did you ever hear of that? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a whole community in, in Upper New York State uh, of Christians. It's a beautiful place, and they, and they bring New York City ballet and all kinds of incredible things. So you go there for culture. My wife loves it, and I was there for a whole week as a lecturer, and it was it was unbelievable. They have uh, an outdoor lecture. There must have been a thousand people there, um, and I'm standing up like a rock star, you know, uh, giving a history of Jewish-Christian relations. So you know, my last lecture was a plea. Why don't you just leave us alone? Why don't, I, 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 it, why don't you just respect who we are? We've had a long history together. Now we can embrace each other, but as human beings, not as theologians. And they, I, I swear to God, there were a bunch of women who came up to me after the lecture, and they were in tears. And I had deeply insulted them. And they said, why don't you want our Christian love? All we want to do is love and embrace you. By, you know, and they couldn't get what I was trying to say to them. So, I guess, you know, uh, as Kohelet says, there's nothing new under the sun. It continues in one way or the other. Is Levinson translated into English by any chance? No. All in Hebrew, and there's not even a major monograph on him. He's, he's mentioned in every history of the Jewish Enlightenment. Uh, and he wrote, you know, many, many other books. I'm only talking about these two polemical works. Um, there is... There, there, there are descriptions of his philosophy in English. Uh, take, for example, Eliezer Schweid's History of Modern Jewish Philosophy. But um, you won't find very much, and all of his other work is in Hebrew, which is really a pity, because uh, he is an interesting thinker. And that's what I'm saying about Eastern European Jewish thought. It needs to be studied in the same way we've studied uh, Western. Anyway, thank you for bearing this out and giving me a chance for doing this.